if you're able to take risks and be creative and do new things um, and then share them openly um, so that other communities and other cities can listen and learn and, and apply, then in a way you can change the world. And here we had this laboratory. Hey Justin, you know that game SimCity, how you build the buildings and the cities and you watch the little people run around in them and interact with them? Yeah, but I don't, I don't think I ever played it. Yeah, I haven't either, but it, doesn't that remind you of Dave Gould's adventure <laughs> in Las Vegas? Yeah, except the stakes were a little higher. Yeah, they couldn't be higher, actually. Hey guys, we're so excited to share this interview with you today, featuring one of our favorite human beings, Dave Gould. Check this out. All right, so here we are at Rule 29. This is our first, you know, on location at Rule 29 podcast, Wills. Yeah, studio in the studio. So everyone, thank you for uh, coming back to Design Of, uh, our podcast about people and process. With us today are two uh, friends of uh, myself and Rule 29s, and soon to be Wills once he learns their names. <laughs> um, there's uh, Joe Selick. Joe, why don't you just give a quick in- uh, intro of who you are? Well, I'm connected to Rule 29 primarily initially through Bob Davidson, longtime friends, um, but have come to love uh, everyone I've met here. I work at the University of Iowa, where I've been for the last almost nine years as an academic advisor, and met David the first meeting that I went to the first week on the job. They There was a big meeting, and they did an icebreaker. Neither of us were excited about it, but we got paired together, and uh, that was the start of kind of the magic of working with Dave and the things. So Icebreaker Fate brought you together. Icebreaker Fate. Yeah. You haven't heard that one before. Do you remember what the icebreaker was? Uh, thankfully, no. I mean, I just remember the result because <laughs> Dave and I became, became quick friends. So. It's one of the few successful icebreaker exactly. stories yeah. that are out there. So you could say that the icebreaker worked. It did. Yeah. yeah. David. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm also at the University of Iowa. I've been there uh, ever since grad school. Well, went there, uh, gosh, I don't even know how many years ago, almost 30 years ago. And um, I'm now the, uh, the Oberman Center Public Scholar for the university, which essentially is one foot in academia, one foot in the, in the real world. And, um, and I teach, I'm on faculty. So again, I've been there for a long time and uh, I'm also a huge fan of Rule 29. So it's wonderful to be here. Like many of our guests on this show, the early chapters of Dave's life looked quite different from the later chapters. But we hope you see common themes throughout his story and how his passions and talents help shape the next season. You know, I, I was initially went to Iowa to get an MFA. Um, my, my undergrad was in studio art and performance music. Hold I, on, hold on, hold on. You are an art major? Oh yeah, I didn't yeah. know this about you. Yeah, in fact, I in fact I had a gallery in Chicago that was representing my work. I was uh, was a working artist. What um, was your medium of choice? I was, I was painting uh, both acrylic, watercolor, um, hmm. and and thought that uh, you know thought that it might be a nice idea to have an MFA that would allow me to be at a college and and teach and and continue to be able to push and change my work, uh, which is something that I you know I was planning on you know again being creative. Uh, um, I, I came to Iowa to get an MFA largely because my wife uh, got a teaching job at Coe College, um, which is in Cedar Rapids, about 30 minutes away. We got it in the summer, uh, showed up in Iowa City. I took some classes. Um, I took some classes really as, uh, uh, I mean, to be honest, just as a, I was bored. I, I uh, hadn't gotten to the program yet. I wasn't going to start that until the fall. and. Um, and, and what the outgrowth of that was is, you know, life sometimes takes you in different directions. I, I started meeting some faculty members. I was working at the, a thing called Project Art at the university hospitals and clinics where we were bringing art into the lives of the patients and their families, uh, many of which were kind of uh, terminal. And, and that's um, beautiful. Yeah, it was, it was wonderful. And, uh, and, you know, the right plug kind of came along from a faculty member and said, look, you can come into art. I know you want to get an MFA, but you can come in our, our graduate program. Uh, you can take art and you can bring it into the community and, um, and we'll pay for your grad school. That's pretty visionary. Yeah, yeah. and, and I, I thought, you know, my goal was to find some way of, of marrying the things that I loved with uh, kind of my day job. And, um, and so I thought, well, gosh, that, that you know, bird in a hand, that's the direction I'll go. And that really is what kind of launched me. 
I, I gradually you know, moved through grad school and uh, my grad program was much more aligned with sociology, cultural studies. Um, I, had a, I had an opportunity as I was getting out uh, to actually be an academic advisor on a, on a series for, for public television, a, a television series, documentaries. And, um, and immediately once I got into that, um, it opened a whole world. It, it seemed to all kind of line up. I was able to see the artwork, the visuals. I was able to hear music as a character. Hmm. Um, I'd learned to write in grad school, and so I started making documentary films, which kind of came together. And uh, <laughs> I didn't know this about you either. This, yeah. this is as interesting to me as yeah. And they were, and they were all fast, you know, wonderful stories. And um, you know, I had I've been I had a production company to that for for quite a few years while I was still teaching and still working on the academic work. And um, and it's been kind of. Uh, you know, it's a weird thing. I, I uh, several years ago, I gave I, I I gave a commencement address at our university, and um, I tend to never look backwards. I really don't. Um, I tend to always try and keep my focus ahead. But the weird thing was is that when I took the moment and thought of myself when I was in the seats of those students and tried to think of myself as a twenty-something again, and really looked at my life in that kind of perspective on one on one you know frame, it's it's all over the place. It's, uh, you know, if you thought, how in the world did this guy get from here to there? But on, on another frame, it, um, it makes perfect sense. And the things that I still cared about when I went in, a kid wanting to be a painter, um, you know, in some ways is still exactly what hmm. I'm doing, just a different, different door and different window. That's very cool. So again, were you married to your wife when you moved? Yep. Okay. Yep, okay. Yep, so it wasn't married. just chasing a girl. It was no, it was, yeah, no, yeah. no. No, we were we were about two or three years. We actually lived not too far from here. We lived in Carroll Stream when we were newly married, and oh, wow. uh, and wanted to. Uh, yeah, we we both had grown up here. Uh, my wife's from Batavia, literally about uh, ten miles from here, fifteen miles from here. My and, hometown currently. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and I'm I'm from Hoffman Estates, and so uh, we met at Northern Illinois University, uh, my undergrad, and. Uh, and, um, and we wanted to kind of explore, but not be too far away from both of our families. And so, That's so cool. four hour circle encompassed, uh, encompassed Iowa City. <laughs> Here I am, I've known you for like a couple of years now, and I just, everything you just told me was brand new for me. That's incredible. <laughs> so, okay, so here you are, you're, you're at the University of Iowa, and you get your degree, right? And then, and then how did you transition from being, a, well, the, the true story is is that I taught a little bit in my grad program, but, um, but my films were actually doing well. I, uh, was, I did a couple films for HBO and was, my work was actually selling and I had a production company and, um, and I had really pulled away from academia. Um, I thought the film work would be what I would do and put my focus into. And uh, I had a nephew that uh, then moved up to Iowa City really to be close to us. He was from uh, the Illinois suburbs as well. Uh, you know, it was a terrific thing. It was kind of this wonderful relationship where I spent two or three years, uh, you know, taking him to lunches and introducing him to people and uh, listening to the life of a 20-something uh, and just really having one of those kind of very special uncle-nephew relationships. And um, we had this running gag because I just stopped teaching the semester he came. And uh, he had always wanted me to go back. And, um, and you know, I, I, my, 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 he was, his line to me was, um, you know, don't you want to shape young minds? And my comment back to him was uh, I'd hate to tell your folks after I flunk you how would I how would I face them? <laughs> I, I think his GPA is really the thing he wanted shaped, but um, yeah. but it was it was just wonderful thing. Uh, the Friday before final exams, spring semester, uh, two thousand and eight. Um, Mike came over, uh, he shared with me he wasn't uh, feeling well, he was having trouble keeping food down, actually was came over to speak to my wife. and Because um, uh, your wife's in the medical profession? Yeah, my wife's yeah. a nurse, okay. and so uh, you know, he really came to see me, but he really was waiting to see her, and uh, she wasn't home, and, um, and he, that weekend, had gone home to kind of spend some time with his family, and by the... I called him on Saturday. He had a temperature. Was in when bed on Monday. The next call I got, um, he was in the emergency room. They thought oh he gosh. had an appendicitis attack. 
long story short, um, he had colon rectal cancer. Mm. And, um, you know, of course, our lives changed pretty dramatically. Uh, he was gone by August. Mm. Um, and in the driveway of my sister-in-law's um, house, uh, the day we buried him, um, crazy scene, uh, a van full of all the floral arrangements were out and my sister-in-law understandably was grief stricken and she was didn't want any of them in her home and she was just forcing them on everyone, take this with you, this kind of stuff. And I I just, had, it, I'd had too much and I remember pulling my phone out and I started walking up the street and I was calling myself. I really didn't want to talk to anybody, mm -hmm. um, but I didn't want anyone to talk to me either. And uh, um, I called home uh, my own answering machine, which I'd called probably an hour before, and uh, and there was a message there for me, and it was uh, from a guy named Ken Mobley in uh, uh, what was called the Leisure Studies Program, teaching a class uh, that he offered for me to come back in, at the university. And uh, his line was that you're not going to get paid very much, you can make a big difference. And uh, um, the timing, the kind of the, the, the window of opportunity just seemed uh, too ironic, and I I remember I called him back and left him a message and said, I didn't even talk to my wife, I didn't even know how much the job would pay or when the class was, but I said I would, I would teach, and that put my foot back into academia. It's a story that I tell uh, before every class I teach, because the reality is, is that um, the reason that I'm, I'm there, in large part, um, is because of him and, uh, and his memory, his... Um, you know, the, the opportunity to make a difference is certainly, uh, is certainly what drives me. The University of Iowa uh, at that time was dropping, we weren't in the bottom, but we were dropping towards the bottom in retention of our students. Um, the associate dean took me, to, uh, took me to coffee, it was actually about this time of year, and she challenged me to see what I might be able to come up with to help with that. I mean, we didn't really know why, but for reasons not just after their freshman year, but even after their sophomore years, after even their junior years, they were just choosing not to come back. And when you looked at the students, obviously there were some that were vulnerable students, but the vast majority weren't. In fact, some of them were even our best and brightest. And it didn't mean that they weren't going to college someplace else. We had a lot of kids in Iowa from the, university, uh, from the Northwest suburbs, so maybe they were staying in state, saving money. But, um, but to her credit, it troubled her that a student could be on our campus for one, two, even three years mm -hmm. and so easily pull up roots. Um, I thought about it a few days and I, uh, anecdotally, um, from the students I'd seen, believe that, uh, that we should be looking at higher education differently. Um, that we were what I would call hot housing uh, students, where we were taking kids that maybe their love was in art or music or literature, and you know, what kind of major, you know, can you, what kind of life can you make out of that major? And so instead, because it was expensive and we had to be practical and we had to be efficient, they were sitting in, in business and computer science and pre-med. Nothing wrong with those if that's where your love is, but if your heart's someplace else, that's a lonely place to be. Um, and even worse, um, I believe that there were young adults who hadn't even figured out what the heck they cared about, what the heck they wanted to do. Um, they hadn't had the time to explore and, and they were missing this wonderful opportunity where it makes sense to be an English major today and a philosophy major tomorrow and a computer scientist major in two weeks. I mean, nobody thinks that's an odd thing. And so I proposed a class called Life Design that really looked again at the university as a, as, a, as a totally different type of a structure and an opportunity for them to explore and discover who they were. Betting on the fact that they, if they were intrinsically motivated, that if they, they found something that kept them up at night, something that they really cared about and hung on to that and clinged to it and trusted in that, that that would lead them to where they needed to go better than throwing a dart at a moving job target. Um, the class started in the fall of 2010 um, you know, in a couple of semesters we had, I had nearly 400 students, it, wow. it grew quickly, and, um, and all kinds of wonderful people started passing through the classrooms, and, and, and I, I then noticed one, one missing piece in my thinking. Um, students were, were circling back into my office, uh, they were sitting in the chairs they were sitting in before, they were telling me, gosh Dave, this is wonderful, I mean, college has come alive to me, I'm, I have, uh, you know, got mentors, I've got a major I love, I'm dancing for kids with cancer, I started my own student organization. Um, but they would then say, um, 
in a couple of weeks, six weeks, ten weeks, whatever it is, I am graduating. Uh, what's the next playbook? You know, hand it to me. And they, the scary thing to me is they actually thought I had one. And, um, <laughs> and I, I realized that, um, that I risked losing them. Um, all this work, all this inspiration, all this desire to go out and make a difference in the world that if we didn't plug them in, um, you know, they would jump out on the other side with a heavy student debt. Their parents would say, get a job, uh, which they should, and they would take whatever they could get. 50% uh, of our students, by the way, that graduate um, get jobs that don't require a college degree. So they're selling real estate, they're working as a barista, they're managing a restaurant. Nothing wrong with those noble jobs to be sure, but you know, fast forward two, three, four, five years, um, they got a house payment or an apartment they're paying on a car payment. Heaven forbid they're married with kids. I mean, next thing you know, sure. um, that dream and ideal that they came out with um, is you know it's it, it was the, for the young and naive and so different. so again to to kind of just really get back to the 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 meat of the class and that was you encouraged them to take the things that they're passionate about and what they were studying at school and then apply them to an idea in or? many cases I took them to find them um, the class was really about discovery I mean um, you know what do you care to do what do you want to I mean. Only surprisingly, and this is this is research driven. Only twenty percent of our undergraduates know what they're passionate about. The other eighty percent have to find it. Hmm. And um, and and how do you find it? Well, it's a lot like dating. You know, you you go out with a lot of different girls, and until you find the one, you can't live without. And so, in large part, uh, this through stories and reflective writings and things like that. Um, I forced them to go out to discover, to hear stories, to take risks, to try things that they could never imagine themselves doing just to see how do the clothes feel. Mm -hmm. um, more to your point, um, when I began to see that, um, that they'd found that, but then, you know, now they're holding a cord, where do I plug this in when I graduate? I realized that college also could then be a good place for them to learn how this fits. And is that because the, the, the ideas they were having were jobs that didn't necessarily exist or they were just hard to find? Oh, no, no, no. They, it, it, it isn't a matter of that they didn't exist. Um, and I don't even know if it was hard to find. But, you know, the thing is, is that um, you, you can be passionate about something. But until you understand how it serves a larger world, um, even though you're maybe very proficient at it, I might be a really, really great painter, but until I figure out how other people can use this, how this contributes to your lives, it's a hobby, no matter how good I am. Mm -hmm. um, there has to be a way that it serves a larger world. And so, so really, you know, they figured out step one, but how, how this contributes to something larger than themselves. Um, is step two. And, and I would argue that once you figure out how it contributes to something larger than yourself, the money comes. You know, you figure out how the revenue stream, how you support yourself on it. You may not be rich, right. but you'll figure out how I take care of myself, how I pay bills, how I, how I put food on the table. And so I believe that, that step one in college was this wonderful opportunity to figure out who you are, uh, what fits well. But then step two would be, how does that then plug in and serve something bigger than yourself. And you can do that in a place where you've got mentors. You can do that in a place where you've got people to critique. You can do that where, again, failure, I mean, come on, it's the first time you tried it. You know, um, right. failure's not devastating. Failure doesn't mean my family suffers. Um, and so that's then when I knew I needed to make a second experiment, create a second class, which became the Reimagining Downtown, which is where you and I met. Awesome. Like most of us, Dave often employs a learn-as-you-go philosophy for how he gets from point A to point B. And more often than not, it works out for him. Well, a lot of times you figure out, I think what I do is I figure out what the need, I see maybe where the destination is, and then the truth is, you make it up as you go. Um, I, <laughs> Hold I, on, so you're, you're saying you faked it until, you know. I, I, yeah, I do yeah. that often. Yeah. I do that often. Faking it until you're making it. Yeah. I, uh, I... I knew that uh, I knew that what I wanted to do was to have students actually get their hands dirty, take what their education is providing them, and actually go build something. And um, I knew I wanted to do it interdisciplinary, the way the real world is. And so, 
I had met Tony Shea. Uh, he was actually, believe it or not, the second day of that life design class I talked about. He came through town. I had developed a relationship with him. So and hold on, I, before we get too much farther, who mm -hmm. is Tony Shea? Just in Tony case. Shea is the CEO of Zappos. And, um, you know, he had, in uh, this, the summer of 2010, had written a book called Delivering Happiness. I was, um, at that time over the summer, my master plan was I was reading books with a group of students. I was having my students help me write questions. I was then, um, kind of my version of a podcast, I was, uh, I was interviewing, <laughs> interviewing the authors with questions directly written from 20-somethings after reading their materials. So in other words, let's unpack it for how it really affects me. And then the idea is that you would then take my class in the fall and you'd read Daniel Pink, Seth Godin, whoever it would be, and then you'd be able to download this interview. While granted you weren't there yourself, these would be questions that would pertain to the frame of life that you're at. Mm -hmm. And um, and Tony Shea had done Delivering Happiness. I thought it was a, a, a book that would be, be wonderful my, for my students to engage in. And so I asked him if he would do an interview with me. Uh, he said yes. And then as we got closer, he said, well, look at Dave, instead of us doing this on the phone or over Skype or something, um, I just realized that my book tour is I'm driving, man, from Omaha to Chicago. I think I pass Iowa City. Why don't we just do this in person? And, and I looked at my calendar, and it was the second day of that new class, and I said, Oh, that's awesome. Why don't we just do it in front of my students? And, and as I've told a lot of people, it was a really pivotal day for me um, as an academic because I'll be honest, uh, many of my colleagues, very lovingly so, um, told me that this idea was doomed for failure, that this class that was built with no carrots and sticks. Uh, there's, you know, you would come only because you were intrinsically motivated to. There was no grades that you were gonna need to worry about, no tests or midterms, that if I missed my notes, I'm gonna flunk this thing. I mean, did they get credit for it? It was one semester hour, okay. so, so okay. nothing. It applied to, no, it applied to no, no major requirements. It was just this one semester hour course. Um, and the class was so large, I couldn't even, I mean, I wouldn't even take attendance. So you being there was largely because you felt there was something valuable taking place there. That's really the way I designed it. And, um, and I knew, you know, they told me, Dave, that, that learning for learning's sake is third or fourth on their priority list. Wow. And, um, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of things. They're jumping through hoops to get the degree, to get the job. You know, these sideline water stations is, is not important. And, um, and I was okay with that from my own perspective. Um, if I ended up and there were only out of 150 students, there were only 10 that felt sorry for me at the end of the day, at the time the class was <laughs> over, I could live with that. It was just an experiment didn't work. But you can imagine doing that in front of someone who I didn't know, who was a guest, who I had pitched the idea that this was a class that he'd right. be interested in. How many students did you have enrolled? At I had 100, 150, okay. 150, a full, full room. and. Uh, and, and again, to tell you, uh, the, you know, he, Tony not only showed up, not only did the students counter and, and show up as well, not only was it an engaging, wonderful conversation, but Tony, in a very quiet, he's a, he's, a, he's a quiet man, he in a very kind of offhanded, quiet kind of way, he said to the class, he goes, look, I'm in town for a little while, if somebody wants to show me around or tell me, you know, continue the conversation, I'm here. And 150 students picked up their backpacks and followed him out of the room. Um, <laughs> down, awesome. down the campus, um, through town, to a gravel parking lot where his bus was parked and stood there for two hours and chatted with him and took pictures and toured his, his, you know, his, his, his van and you know, all that stuff. I mean, it was just... Um, wow, that's so cool. It was, it was really a magical moment. And I stood on the outside and watched. And I realized that what my colleagues assumed um, was lack of interest, um, was really that what my students wanted was to be inspired. Mm. And, um, and so I kept that as kind of my compass, that, uh, that you know, what makes the classroom come alive is things that are inspiring, things that, uh, that they get excited about. And if you do that, um, that's really what they're looking for. And so 
I by would, the way, I, I, I think, Will, do you want to take this class? Because I do. Yeah, 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 yeah. They do a distance. Yeah. I, do, I actually do have it online. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I do have it online. Um, so what happened next? So, so, I, so fast forward to where we were at with the Reimagining Downtown class. I'd kept a relationship with Tony. I had gone out to see Zappos for myself. I had um, developed a friendship with him. And, um, and at that time, Tony was... Um, was moving Zappos into downtown Las Vegas. He had sold it to um, he had sold it to Amazon. He had taken his personal money uh, to the tune of about three hundred fifty million dollars, and he had purchased nineteen block sixty acres of downtown Las Vegas in what I consider to be one of the most interesting social experiments. Um, his subject heading to me was uh, in one of the emails is what if you could play SimCity for real. Wow. And the idea is is that um, that we would curate this community and an emphasis on community that um, that the investments that would be made fifty million into tech fifty million into small business fifty million into arts and education uh, two hundred million went into the real estate um, that while return on investment would be important you have to have a business plan you got to make money businesses are about that but what we would ask is a whole second layer. And the second layer would be return on community. And so it wasn't enough that you had a business that would be profitable. Yeah, that's where it starts. But you also had to prove and show to us how you would contribute to, again, something larger than yourself. And, um, and that, to me, was fascinating. And so I went well, out with my wife and visited with them about it. That's, that's, that's incredible. I, help us understand what that that area, that city, the, you know, why was he investing so much money? Was it, was it, uh, you know, thriving or? Oh, or? it was actually it, arguably downtown Las Vegas. So when people think, I mean, your listeners, when they think of Las Vegas, if you haven't really visited there, you might be thinking the images that you see in the movies or on TV, a Caesar's Palace, Bellagio. I mean, that's the strip. And that actually is not Las Vegas. That's un unincorporated. Um, downtown Las Vegas is where maybe the, the dealers live and the cocktail waitresses and the you know the the more blue collar people that actually drive up and work in the strip the valet parkers um, now what happened is is in the recession um, arguably it was one it's a one trick pony town and it was arguably one of the if not the worst hit cities uh, during the, the recession wow. and so subsequently uh, downtown Las Vegas was devastated um, it was uh, abandoned buildings, and uh, and you you I mean what also interested me is if you take um, and think of a petri dish of all the social ills that our cities are going through. Um, I love Las Vegas, so I say this with love. But it was it was all concentrated right there. Arguably the worst educational system in the country. Um, sex trafficking, prostitution, um, all of this stuff, unemployment, all of this stuff happening in this downtown area. So it was destitute. And so it, in some respects, that's why, you know, $200 million, you go into downtown Las Vegas, that buys you 19 blocks, 60 acres. <laughs> right. Um, and, and again, it, the crazy thing is it's right downtown. It's right there. Hmm. Wow. To fully understand how big the challenges were that downtown Las Vegas faced, listen to the words of some of the city's politicians. In the 50s, the downtown area was a much more settled place, a lot of residential. Sometime back, perhaps in the 60s or 70s, it became an area of high transiency and uh, the old timers moved out of there. The old businesses also moved out of there. What was left was this poor little sad downtown. Nothing was happening. We had some struggling hotels. I mean, you have a sad little forgotten place. You're a magnet for homeless. You're a magnet for crime. We really suffered significantly during the recession. We led the list in foreclosures, unemployment. I mean, we had never been behind Detroit. And why Las Vegas? Um, it's where Zappos was. So right. Zappos was, in, um, you know, he had moved, I mean, the company was founded, Zappos, in California. Mm -hmm. He had moved it to Las Vegas, and actually it was in Henderson, um, you know, before the corporate headquarters. It was in Henderson, and um, he had moved it there because um, 
because largely, uh, well, it's a 24-7 town. Right. Um, he's got a call, you know, a call center, and uh, and he was able to, f it's a service-oriented town. Mm -hmm. And of course, Zappos built their culture around customer service. And so he saw those as really tangible things that would plug into what he was trying to do with Zappos. They had outgrown their place in Henderson, so the timing was right. He'd sold it, so he had the, uh, the money to be able to do it. And, uh, and, and as a real, to me, very poetic gesture, he bought City, or he leased City Hall. And so City Hall, which, you know, the, the government, uh, city government had moved into a new place, so there it is, right downtown, the, the former City Hall, and he made that the new Zappos headquarters. Wow. And so here he had that, and then he spread his money and everything around it uh, was, the, was the plan. Hmm. And so what I did was I went and saw that for myself. Uh, it was really, at that time, it was a bunch of abandoned buildings and I looked at drawings on, a, on his condo wall and tried to look out the window and imagine what these desolate abandoned lots would look like with the visions that we're beginning to, to formulate. Um, and I said to him, uh, we went to lunch and I said that uh, this is wonderful. And he goes, what would you like to do? And I said, I'd like to engage my students in some way. And by the time the lunch was over, uh, Tony had pledged money um, and housing to engage my students to actually build something as part of his initiative. And so and Joe was very much a part of this. Uh, we had a group of faculty we, that connected all through the colleges throughout the university. And um, we had a call of applications. We got hundreds of applications from students. And from a dance major to a finance major, um, we selected 14 students that uh, the, spent the semester um, working, working as a team collectively trying to figure out what they would like to contribute. We went down there over spring break to test our ideas, to speak with the community, to obviously solicit their input and make sure that, that what we're doing is something that really would add value. And then they spent the summer after the semester, the class was long over. I mean, some of the students had graduated and they postponed uh, finding jobs. Other students postponed obviously raising funds for their next, you know, next academic year. But we spent the summer out there then actually building what the students had designed. I'd like to know what, A, what the administration of the university was thinking about all this happening. And two, what was the mayor and city council of Las Vegas saying about in the early stages of all this development? Well, I'll start with the university piece. Um, you know, the university. I, I I worked for a wonderful associate dean when I was when I was uh, the associate director, one of the associate directors in the College of Arts and Sciences, and she would always use the term when I would come to her with these crazy ideas. She would say, "Well, we can try that experiment." Um, <laughs> you, you know, it's a pilot. It's an experiment, and that would be the terminology she would use. And I and the life design class had been successful enough. That um, that we were able to um, we were able to I was able to lobby that and use that as leverage mm -hmm. for her to allow me to try because really when you think about it um, not only not only was I probably half crazy and risky but you know the university my gosh what we're going to do we're going to bring a bunch of twenty somethings for a week of spring break in Las Vegas <laughs> and then we're going to let them loose in the <laughs> summer in Las Vegas in downtown Las Vegas and and you know. Um, I subconsciously was aware of that, and my students were too. And what they realized was that this was a special opportunity. And what they realized was is that the steps and the model that they set would make or break anyone who followed. And um, and I think that uh, because it turned out positively, it became a wonderful PR tool for the university, a wonderful Absolutely. opportunity to do it. So that's your the uh, the answer to your question about Las Vegas. Las Vegas is like a city I've never seen. Um, you know, their mayor, their city council, people, the whole way they do things. It's, it's in one respect, it's absolutely wonderful because it's got this maverick spirit that anything can happen. They're all gamblers, right, you know, both literally and figuratively. <laughs> you know, they're all gamblers. And so this notion of startups and trying new things, they have a long history of it. They have a high tolerance for it. So the notion of people doing this thing is just, quite honestly, is just like, yeah, okay, man. It's, we, they've been there before. They've seen this. <laughs> Tony is not the first guy to come in and, and, and bring lots of money and start to, to change the, 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 the look and the landscape of Las Vegas. And, and the flip side, too, is that because they were in such need and because there were so many problems that when you got somebody who comes in and is helping you revitalize the community um, with his own personal money, you know, as a, as a politician, that's wonderful. Oh, that's wonderful. Mm -hmm.
It's funny because I, I remember my senior year, I'm not like the guys who had you know, their entire five-year plan laid out. But I walk into career services, mm -hmm. and I'm like, guys, I'm graduating in two and a half months. Here's the things, I like photography, I like design, I like writing, I like storytelling, like movies. What, what do I do? And she like flips through my portfolio and like of work that I've done, and she just, you know, closes it, looks across the counter at me. Have you heard of Enterprise Rent-A-Car? No. And I was no, like, come on. That's no. a true story. Oh. Yeah. What, and I was where, like, where are the storytelling and the, <laughs> the photography? She, well, she looked. Cars or? <laughs> no, I mean, she was just like, they have a great entry yeah. level management program no. that you should yeah. think about. And I just like, this wow. conversation's over. Wow. And so, Luckily, you Bob, who had all those yeah. same interests, right? Yeah, yeah. Wow. <clears throat> I mean, it's. I know that struggle so well. Yeah. That's why we were really excited to talk to you guys. What were the results, uh, impact process of that, of that class working in with the downtown project? Well, it was. I mean, I would say that it is, was, from my perspective, it was the hardest class I've ever taught, and the most meaningful class I've ever taught. Um, I've never had a group of students up until this semester, which we did another experiment very similar. But I've never had a group of students up to that point that had had actually cried as a, as a class because they cared so much and they were frustrated trying to get to where they wanted to go. They cared so much about their destination. Um, when I found out that my students were meeting on their own every Saturday uh, at a, you know, kind of a, a open workspace um, to brainstorm ideas together and had set up their own times outside the classroom to do that, um, you can imagine as a teacher what that meant to me. Mm. Uh, our classes, we had, I mean, well, we had an hour and a half or, qu or so that was allotted to us, you know, kind of your traditional start and finish time. Our classes would often go for several hours afterwards uh, just because nobody would leave and the conversations would continue. And, um, and you know, they built a bond uh, amongst themselves. Uh, if you look at where those students are, it's amazing how, I mean, really w what was more important is how that became a trajectory for their lives more than actually, you know, what they tangibly built. Sure. Um, but yeah, you look at where those students have gone, what their lives are just now starting to really unfold. And I believe that uh, there's a thing called momentum. I believe there's a thing called uh, belief when you and when you start to see things be able to be unpacked and you believe that things can happen uh, you know you know that you can get up from failure you know that you can find solutions to things that seem like big obstacles um, you know while there'll be new obstacles and new new walls to get around um, you know you, you 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 tackle them you tackle them with the faith you can do it and uh, and I think that has projected these students uh, you know Actually, one that Joe uh, uh, brought in the direction of the class was a student named Chelsea, who um, I remember she came from a small Iowa farm town and was afraid to go to the University of Iowa. That was this huge, wow. giant community city that would swallow her up. Um, I also remember being on the airplane sitting next to her going to Las Vegas. And uh, it was for spring break, and she uh, to have our first trip down there to see it. And she had a text, and I remember her taking her phone, and I kind of looked over. I was actually looking out the window, but I think she thought I was looking at her phone. And she kind of pulled it away just naturally, and I wasn't quite sure, I wasn't, you know. And, and then I think she felt bad, and she showed it to me. And what it was, it was her aunt who was basically saying, that instructor better bring you back alive. I can't believe you're going to Las Vegas. What, you know, that was scared. Wow. Wow. And was that her first... As her first trip, Danger, first real trip, certainly yeah. to a place like Las Vegas, <laughs> and her family back in the small Iowa town um, was scared to death for her. And I remember having that settle into me about, my gosh, you know, this is this is for some of these, this is huge. Right. And um, not only did she stay beyond the project and live in in Las Vegas and actually do a startup of her own, but now she's in Uganda. And she's uh, she's what? working on the Peace Corps, which of course was again a, another deep breath by her family. But but um, but they have gotten used to the risks she's taking and the ability for her to succeed in these new environments. And and equally important, if not more important, so does she. Well, what's beautiful, I would I would argue that you were a part of her journey, discovering how she was made, and that she's arguably living life more to its the fullest because she was given the opportunity to see the world differently 
and to get out of her normal, which is incredibly exciting. I don't know if I told you this, but and, and you, I don't know if you remember, but you had uh, Bob and I um, sit in on the initial presentations of the ideas that your students came up with. And I can tell you that I was on cloud nine the rest of the week. And, and I'll, to be really transparent, is for two reasons. One, I was incredibly inspired by what you guys were doing. And on the other hand, I was incredibly envious. Because to have an opportunity in school, that can't be anything but life-altering. And so bravo to you to give them that opportunity, but also it inspired people that just touch the class, right? And did you have other people have that oh, experience? We had, we, had, we had lots of folks that, that uh, this was a, obviously a very inspiring, what, what inspiring group of young adults. And, and what you find is that when you take young adults um, and you, you let, let them loose, um, I believe that most of my students, if, if not almost the vast majority, almost all of them, want to live meaningful lives. They want to do meaningful things with their lives. And the problem is they don't know how, they don't have resources, they don't have opportunities, um, they don't have experience. That's yeah, not the environment they've been in. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, and even your students, I mean, we had some of the best and brightest students in this group that were very good at doing school. But <laughs> being good at school is not the same thing as I've got a problem that I, I don't know how to solve. I, I don't know what the answer is. And you know what? My teacher doesn't either. You know, I mean, that's the reality. And um, and so, no, I, I think I think there's something very inspiring about young adults who what we need from them. I'm talking about the four of us sitting here. We need their idealism. We need their energy. We need their belief that I mean, they don't know that they can't do anything. Right. And that is important for us. On the other hand, the resources, opportunity, experience is what we can lend them. And um, they inspire us and hopefully we help them. Um, but I will also say, um, yeah, there were a whole host of people that I think were impacted by these young adults, from the people that came in and out of the rooms like you and Bob, to uh, to the people in Las Vegas, the community, what was following them and, and watching what they were doing. Um, you guys came in as an initial step because we knew that this whole way of of, of, of how how the what I would say the cutting edge designers are now viewing the profession, how design is a part of everything was an important element for them to learn and thinking through what they were going to build, and then of course once we got to the stage of having somebody be able to give them objective critiques on what they were going to build and their ideas, I mean that's why we did the Skype thing from actually probably this building right here. Yeah, I know we did. Yeah, yeah. All right. So before we move on, can you summarize the the results? that that um, class had and the impact and? Well, the, it, 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 the class had, um, I think, a tremendous impact on our Iowa City community, on the university community because of what they did and what others have modeled. What has come from that is an entire major uh, called the Engaged Social Innovation Major at the University of Iowa that was really birthed with that group. Hmm. These are honor students now that, um, that it's actually a structured major where students are borderless. They can take any class they want. Um, you know, it's kind of like an individualized plan of study, but the difference is you can change them in real time. So the idea being what I learn when I start a semester, I should be different. I should have different knowledge by the time I get to the end. Um, and by the end of that semester, I now might need to alter my plan, my path a little bit based on what the classes I took. And so in real time, you're able to adjust your plan in borderless, meaning I can take anything and I can, I can, I can, if I have the intellectual ability, I can leapfrog prerequisites, so I can target the specific classes I need in an interdisciplinary way. And then my last semester, um, the entire semester is taken where I'm building something that my education has led to. Um, the, you know, it could be anywhere, it could be in the state, it can Sounds be in the country, amazing. anywhere in the world. So, so that was birthed from this group of students. Um, there's a, there's, there's initiatives that are still going on in Las Vegas. Um, the community partner that they worked with now owns his own uh, 
a place called Grassroots, and um, and you know he worked closely with the students and is still doing outreach in the schools and the community based on the initiative and inspiration that the students helped with. I mean, he was a, a wonderful community partner for them, so it was a win-win. And then, um, again, you take a look, I mentioned the student in Uganda, but you take a look at the, the rest of the, the group of students, and they are in graduate schools and med schools. Uh, one of them skipped his last year of college and went straight into an MFA program at the Art Institute. I mean, these students are exceptional, and, um, and their lives are, are launching as well. I think one of the biggest challenges when you encounter a series of, well, challenges is to know where to start. And we have seen this situation with a number of people we've spoken to. I think what's beautiful about this project and what Dave is uh, helping lead is that he's creating this canvas and this opportunity for students to make decisions and be a part of the solution. The final project that they came up with is they saw a a need for um, education and nutrition. Um, arguably, um, there's a lot of things, I mentioned the Petri dish of problems, but arguably Las Vegas is one of the worst nutritional places, especially when it comes to, to children. And right on the corner in downtown Las Vegas is uh, is a place called, what's the name of it, Joe? A heart Attack Heart Grill. Attack Grill. Yeah. Heart Attack Grill. <laughs> you eat for uh, free if you're over 300 pounds. Come on! Wow. Yeah, you eat. So if you're over 300 pounds, I mean, it's it's yeah. it is the it's the exact exact mockery of good health. You come in, they put you in a smock. Um, they cook your food in lard. If you don't, your 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 waitresses are dressed in nursing outfits. Um, if you don't finish what? your food, if you don't what? finish your food, you're paddled. Uh, people have actually died because you eat for free, as Joe said. And some people have actually have had, I mean, it's been in the news, have had heart attacks at Heart Attack Grill eating the food. Um, and actually, physically, there's been a few cases of people dying. Um, and so that is in your downtown, okay? That's your downtown. So what the students concluded um, was that uh, they weren't going to go from Heart Attack Grill to grab a handful of carrots. They needed an intermediary <laughs> right. step, uh -huh. and so with uh, Shane Stewart, who was their uh, you know their community partner, they started a um, an initiative um, called Sugar Coat, and the idea was is that they would create parfaits, sorbets, um, you know that Smoothies. taste wonderful. Uh, yeah, and they would and they would incorporate kale and honey, and uh, they would go into schools. They would demonstrate how this was done. You know, so you're putting all this stuff in a blender and it turns green and all this. <laughs> when you taste it, it's wonderful, and and it's just kind of this intermediary step, in, in, intermediary step about how uh, you can eat healthy and it can taste good. We both have a ton of respect for people that give themselves completely to the work that they do. And Dave is the perfect embodiment of giving himself to his work completely. The man left his family back in Iowa to spend time with his students in the community in Las Vegas. Yeah, he is just impressive. Well, I, I spent most of that summer with my students in Las Vegas and was flying in and out. Um, you know, back and forth from, from my home in Iowa, um, just so I could be there to monitor their experience, to make sure it was successful, and, uh, you know, to see, I mean, I was there to see the last student who left Las Vegas fly off. And uh, as that was wrapping up, um, the opportunity to plug into the project myself, to actually take some of these ideas and see how I might, and I, to be quite honest, I didn't even know what that meant. I mean, when we when we chatted at the restaurant and I told you I was going to actually leave my position as the associate director and join the downtown project, what that meant um, was a wide open canvas. And um, but you know what? You know one of my favorite things that you said in that conversation. I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. Is you were kind of telling us the idea, and you had said to us, "Hey, what do you guys think?" And inside, I was like, fireworks of excitement were going off. But right around that, before I said anything, you had said something along the lines of, I know what my next few years looks like where I'm at now. And then you had said, I have no idea what the future is on this. Yeah. It's, a, it's actually, I can't take credit for it. It's a, a, a little anecdote, writing anecdote that John Irving told me. And John Irving told me uh, that when he writes, um, and any good writer, um, and you have a character at a crossroads, and one path will lead your character in the story to the, to the predictable, 
boy meets girl. I don't know when, I don't know how, but eventually they're going to get together and they're going to get married. And I can, I can see it. I can't tell you exactly how the spot's going to happen, but I know where this is going. And the other path leads you into a dark forest where anything is possible. You always take your character into the dark forest. And um, it's, where magic, it's where magic can happen. It's where you also could be eaten alive. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I was in a position in my life, my kids were grown, um, my wife was supportive, um, that I thought the dark forest is where I needed to go. And, um, and that's what I did. I, you know, I, I wasn't crazy enough to have my wife quit her job. She stayed at the University Hospital Clinic. She'd been there 25, you know, plus years. Um, but what I did do is I got a little small one-bedroom apartment. Um, and I, you know, I pretty much what I had when I started heading college, um, and I flew in and out of Las Vegas and, um, and tried to see how I could contribute to that vision that I spoke about. Um, the ideal of building a community where community matters, an ideal that, uh, that you think through, um, not only what businesses will be profitable, but how each of those people, like fingers on a hand, um, contribute to the larger good of the lives of the people who live there. Uh, a long view, a long game, that if we take care of everyone, um, all ships rise. And, um, and then, of course, the, the notion that, uh, that Tony had shared with me that I, I held tight was that if you're able to do that, if you're able to take risks and be creative and do new things, um, and then share them openly, um, so that other communities and other cities can listen and learn and, and apply, then in a way you can change the world. And here we had this laboratory um, where we could build and do anything and had some resources to do it. So your initiative, if you, you know, uh, your quote-unquote job description, which I know is, is somewhat challenging to describe, uh, was what for the downtown? Project? I mean, if I were to say what I focused on, I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, it was uh, it was double-edged sword. Tony really said, "Come spend three months, and you tell me what you think you can do." Um, and on one hand, that is that's a wonderful opportunity. It's kind of what everybody dreams about, right? You know, my boss just says, "Tell me what you want to do for a job." Um, but at the same time, much like my students, I realized when they had an open canvas, build whatever you want. That can also become very paralyzing as you begin to think, my gosh, I, I want to do it right. I want to pick the right thing. Um, I ended up, after circling around with lots of things, I ended up coming right back home. I began to look and say to myself, how can the city become a classroom? How can you take scholars uh, who spend their entire lives studying things that matter, but yet often no fault of their own, rarely get plugged in to really ways to apply them? ways that they affect and change lives. How can you take young adults, uh, you know, 30, 40,000 on our campus here at Iowa, how can you take those young adults and actually take them out of their classrooms at times, get their hands dirty and let them apply what they, what they know. Let them, let them test drive it here, you know, let them do that. And then the cities become these wonderful places, not only for them to play, but also are ripe with problems that need that energy, need that idealism, need that, that knowledge. And, um, and ironically enough, five miles from downtown Las Vegas was UNLV's campus, and that you would absolutely not know it. You would never see a college student, you'd never see a faculty member, you'd never see anything. So one of my initiatives was how could I, how could I start to make that, that work? And um, I, 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 hosted a, I hosted a faculty institute where I brought an interdisciplinary group of faculty from UNLV and from uh, the University of Iowa, and we brought them in there to actually play together and learn together and see how their various disciplines could look at the problems that are going on in the community and take their students, take their curriculums, take their teaching, and actually, in real-world ways, take what I learned in the classroom and then go apply it. Mm -hmm. And we began to explore that. I worked with the MBAs across America, uh, two groups of them. I worked with a group of Harvard students, uh, MBA students from Harvard that came out and we began to work with the community and look at initiatives um, and think at how could we do social good and be sustainable at the same time. And so that began to be where I, I plugged in and, and started to try to apply myself. We also opened um, a community center of sorts 
uh, called The Window that was right downtown on the corner. And by day, that would be a uh, kind of a co-working space. Um, but it was something that we opened and gave freely to any nonprofit. So it became this uh, kind of community center. So public theaters were launched and, and we had forums on homelessness and the whole community would come together and had a place uh, where they could explore and discuss what I believed were important ideas and build again that sense of community. Every student who walks onto a college campus has approximately two million minutes Two million minutes until graduation. Two million minutes to build one's intellectual and emotional basis. Two million minutes to prepare for family, community, service, and career. Two million minutes to get ready for a good launch. I remember uh, our first trip to see you down there. I think it might have been in your 90-day, I'm trying to figure out next steps. Is that is that right? Do you remember that? Yeah, I think it, I think you I, I had you out visited twice. Uh, one was uh, you know um, you and Bob, and I think you might have come out on your own uh, a second time. Yeah, it was uh, me, Bob, and Joe. Yeah, and yeah. then uh, then I think you were out uh, in the spring as well because uh, we saw the Life Cube together. Yeah, so. yeah. When I think yeah. and and the reason I bring that up is because I remember and I was trying to explain this to Will's earlier. The downtown project is really in a lot of ways I think impossible to explain. Um, in the sense of how you feel when you were there, mm -hmm. because when you're there, here you are walking in these um, in these different you know city blocks that you can tell were weren't as in good a shape um, as they were then. You know, you could see some wear and tear, and and but you could also see things changing. You can feel this energy, and you'd walk into almost any building that had been worked on for the downtown project, and you just saw people thinking, ideating, you know, sharing ideas. Uh, I, I can't remember the name of the place that we went to, but it was an old casino that they'd kind of turned into a meeting place. Yeah, the Gold Spike. The Gold Spike. And gold so Spike and uh, 7-Eleven into a theater and a uh, container park built out of shipping containers and on and on and on. It, w it, it was. It was an inspiring place. And the reason is, is because anything was possible. Uh, the idea was is that uh, there were no rules and that and the theory was that failure was part of the portfolio. So if you weren't failing um, a certain percentage, then you probably weren't trying anything new. And the steps and the ideals that they were trying to do were bold, bold steps. Were building a transportation, building a new healthcare model, um, on and on and on. Um, and so, and so, in one respect, um, it was a well, it was a tremendous experience for me across the board. Um, but what I learned. Um, and I, I say this with a lot of, of love and compassion because uh, these are people I care deeply about and, and people who, who wanted, I believe, to have a, have a terrific result. But, you know, it's, community building is complicated. And you can have the vision right, but you can have the execution and commitment wrong. And, um, and over time... Um, you know, the notion of bringing in expertises, the people who had studied things instead of starting from square one, the issues of, of money management and those types of things were, in many respects, began to take the air out of the, out of the, the larger dream. And, um, you know, that to me, um, that to me was taken with, with deep sadness, to be honest. Yeah, so um, what is the status of the downtown project now? Well, I'm actually making my first return trip uh, this February. Um, so I, I uh, since I, I've left, um, you know, I, I've stayed close touch. Um, the downtown project is still there. So hold on, it's February. You're talking about February 2016. So yeah. when, when did you leave? Uh, I left uh, a little over a year ago. Okay. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I was back uh, October a year ago. And so, you know, um, I, when I left, I... I I felt, uh, my wife would hate to hear this, but I felt that I failed. Um, you know, I felt that what I had gone there, and I defined that because what I had gone there to accomplish, what I'd hoped to achieve, um, the sense of building those models that others could use were unsuccessful. Now, whether the businesses actually become successful or not, and time will tell, but many of those unique initiatives, the things that separated it, the magic, if you will, um, there was not, were not inevitably sustainable and were abandoned. 
um, for for financial reasons, and um, and I and that made me very very sad because again going back to your expertise of design, um, the time you put with a pencil on a paper to begin to think through how things will go and what it will look like, um, you know where we're going to build it, how much we what funding will come in through this that will allow us to do that. Um, you know that's that's a very thoughtful process, and uh, unfortunately, um, unfortunately, that kind of forethought uh, wasn't invested, and if it was, it was too late for many of the enterprises. Mm. So, I know you you had just said that you felt that you had failed, but um, did any good come out of that? Do you think? Oh, I think from I mean. You know, I, uh, I think from any experience, good comes from. Um, I mean, if you asked me also, do I regret? Um, I left my job. Uh, I spent 14 months commuting between my family. I slept in a little one-room uh, facility all by myself, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, for a while. Um, you know, not a community. It took me a while to find one, um, to obviously invest myself into it. Uh, do I regret that? I'd say no. Um, I learned so much. Um, and in fact, I would almost, at least I hope, and I, I, at least I tell myself this, that sometimes uh, the lessons you learn from, from things not always going according to plan are the lessons that are most valuable. Um, I understand on a much deeper level um, human nature. I understand because I'll tell you, uh, you know, somebody says I've got three hundred fifty million dollars, and I'm giving fifty million to this, and fifty million to that, and fifty million. And you can't even imagine the people that come out of the woodwork with ideas that you have to do. And I mean, most of my colleagues took themselves off of social media and out of touch because there was just so much of an influx of people trying to tap into that mm. and trying to get a hold of of that. So human nature and what it really means to to care and to be a part of a community. I mean, to me, um, I began to define community. Uh, we, we tend to define it often as proximity, um, but I began to define it as what is your commitment to others? Um, I started initiatives there. I started a thing called uh, the Circle of Dreams um, because I began to push even farther to the point of people uh, giving to others um, and trusting that it returned to them as opposed to what's in it for me. And so our Circle of Dreams was a group of Las Vegas artists um, that would commit themselves to each other and would put their dreams in a circle and then trust that their dream would be taken care of because I've got 10 other people that are going to worry about that. My focus is on the other nine dreams. And um, I, began to, uh, I began to spend a lot of thought on that. I also began to see the value of leadership the value of communication on levels that I hadn't seen before, the importance of expertise, the importance of planning and time and design, um, the importance of, of being willing to being willing to, um, to take the car all the way. Um, I, used to, I used to say, and I probably said to you and Bob, that, um, that, that, I, that Tony was a guy that you didn't necessarily want to play chicken with because he didn't care about losing the money. And, um, you know, and, and, and you know, I, I, I give Tony all the credit because it was his money. It was 350 million real dollars that he put in. But, um, but there came a point where, you know, he had to ease off the accelerator. And he had to say, you know, um, I can't continue this. These aren't working. And I don't fault him for that. It's just it's so unfortunate um, because in the... In the after effect of that, there were a lot of young people, um, a lot of people who believed that had come that I felt, you know, I felt, um, I felt were uh, their lives were were hurt and and had to readjust as a as a as a you know account of that. Mm -hmm. So, here we are now. What what what's Dave doing now? Well, I came back to the university. Um, I spent the spring semester of last year, so last spring, um, really just saying yes to, to things. I uh, was asked to 
to speak in uh, Tokyo for educators and administrators from Southeast Asia. Um, I you know, did TEDx talks and things like that, uh, so I began to take time to write and put some of the, the ideas and thoughts into, uh, into words that uh, were a little more poetic and a little more thoughtful and try and share them with others. I came back teaching. Um, I taught an engaged social innovation class this fall that again brought students and started building things in communities. I looked at my life design and thought how could I continue to push that forward and so what I did uh, for the first time is I invited, I asked the provost for 30 to 40 seats uh, for free to invite our senior citizens in. And so my class now uh, ranged from 18 to 90 years old. And, um, and I engaged in intergenerational experience so that my students would not only have the benefit of hearing whatever you know, material I have put together, whatever speakers might cross the stage, but begin to be engaged with, uh, with people who've got 60, 70 years of life ahead of them to be able to give their perspective, their experience, their knowledge and wisdom to you know, these underclassmen. And, um, and, then, um, and then I'll be continuing to push forward. It's always to me, uh, what can we build, what can be new, what can be different. On Dave's email signature, he has this quote, don't ask yourself what the world needs, ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Wills, I can't better define Dave Gould than that right there. Justin, I couldn't agree more. And to our audience, thank you so much for being a part of this conversation with Dave. We hope you are inspired to explore the next step of your big idea that makes you really come alive. And we'd like to thank inkdot.com for being the sponsor for this episode. Inkdot provides a better way to print. They enable you to print your favorite memories from your phone, computer, or Instagram. Check them out at inkdot.com. And don't forget to follow us online at designofpodcast.com and on Twitter at designofpodcast. And as always, Wills, I want to give a special thanks to Steve Wick, our audio engineer. You know, Steve is like that perfect apple you give to your favorite teacher. No, Justin. He's like scoring big at the craps table in Las Vegas. Oh, that's good. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. Make sure you're tuning in for our coming episodes. We have a really, really incredible lineup for the rest of season two. We'll see you then.